It's not uncommon nowadays for superannuation fund trust deeds to clearly express how the powers of decision-making is to be undertaken by the trustees, even where the trustee is a company, and how decisions at that level may be made as it relates to the superannuation fund. Now, because the trustee company is acting as trustee of this superannuation fund, what you'll find is that the terms of the trustee will likely dominate how decisions are made. You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 181 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. According to ATO statistics, 57% of all SMSFs had a corporate trustee as of 30th of June 2017. And this number is still significantly higher when you just look at newly registered SMSFs. On average, 81% of SMSFs registered in 2015 to 2017 were established with a corporate trustee. And this percentage is probably even higher now in 2019. So most of us who deal with SMSFs would have quite a few corporate trustees on their hands. And at first sight, it looks simple. They look straightforward. They're just a company after all. But when you start looking under the hood, then things don't look so simple anymore. And the questions you sent in support that view. So in today's episode, Peter Bobbin of Argo Lawyers in Sydney will give you some answers to your questions. Hi, today we're going to look at the self-managed super fund trustee issues. And in particular, as some of you would already be aware, my recommendation that you should always use a company. And if you do adopt the option of using a company, just what are some of those issues that arise in connection with using a company? So let's just briefly recap. You can set up a self-managed super fund and all the members can be trustees, that is individually, the persons. Or you can have a corporate trustee, a company access trustee. And again, all of the members must be directors of that corporate trustee. Now, which would you choose? Many, for cost-saving reasons, seems to think that being a person as trustee is the right way to go. But what I always recommend is put a company in place. Why? Just to give you clear and obvious separation. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is when that dividend check comes in, rather than coming in the individual's name, it'll come in the company name. And It'll clearly identify that the dividend check, so to speak, belongs to the super fund. So the first thing is just purely administrative ease. The second thing, or the second reason, and what I regard as probably the more important one, is that if ever there needs to be a change, and, well, death or even disability can create a need for a change because if a person has sadly passed away and in the affliction of time, we're all going to face that, then all of the asset registrations of the super fund need to be changed. Because if we've got two people, Mary and Jim, acting as personal trustees of that super fund and Jim passes away, well, 
I'm afraid Mary, under the superannuation rules, cannot remain a sole trustee of that super fund and she'll need to change anyway. And the time of change, well, the time of change is at the time that she's suffering some degree of grief and concern. And yet you've got to do every single asset, bank account, property holding and share. By having a company in place already, Mary and Jim Proprietary Limited, if something happens to Jim, it's simply one form gets lodged with ASIC, which notes that the other director has passed away and it simply remains a single director company and no change to any asset holdings, bank accounts, property holdings or share lists. So that's really the more important reason as to why I recommend it. Now, if we do accept that idea of having a corporate trustee, what sort of company should you have? Again, my strong recommendation is that you have a company that's separate from anything else that you may have. So look, it it is inexpensive to use the company that you've already got. Perhaps you or the client will already have a company that may act as trustee of a family discretionary trust or perhaps even run its own business. It's quite acceptable, provided, of course, that the directors of the company are the persons that will also be the members of the super fund. It's quite acceptable to use that company. It's quite acceptable to have a company that has multiple roles. But I just think superannuation is just so important that it is the most credit and advantage of the members to keep the superannuation interest completely separate from this family trust or from any company that may carry on specific activity. Now, it was some years ago now, but I can tell you of an occasion where a fellow had his company, which was his operational company, also act as trustee of his sole member superannuation fund. All sounds fine. Until, unfortunately, in that GFC, the global financial crisis, he all of a sudden found his company, because of a business failure, was under administration and, well, it was in the hands of the liquidators. The problem was that same company was also the trustee of his self-managed superannuation fund. Now, some of you would be aware that if a person becomes individually bankrupt, then superannuation is protected. But what we had here is a situation where the company was under the administration of another and all of the assets of the super fund were also in the name of that company. It took three years to get sorted out. Had he had separate companies in place, wouldn't have suffered the problem, the angst, and of course the cost of having to deal with the administrator that subsequently became a liquidator and gone into battle over just what assets were in the name of the company and where did they belong. And particularly when you find out that the cost of a special purpose company, the, that, that is the annual return or ASIC fee that needs to be paid is a mere $54. I really do ask, why wouldn't you put a company in place? It is just really a sensible thing to do. Obviously, most of us don't expect any problems at all, but it's just an insurance policy to have separate company, separate from all the business or any other trust and investment assets One, it's very specific for the super fund. So if we've made that decision and we're now going to use this special purpose company, should it have a special constitution or is a normal off the shelf enough? Are there replaceable rules 
under the Corporations Act appropriate? Well, really, this turns on uh, control issues. That's literally what should be the factor in making this decision. Let me say that the vast, vast, vast majority of people just have a standard off-the-shelf company that they just employ for this purpose. Now, we know that every director must be a member and every member must be a director. So how do we then deal with those control issues? Well, the way you deal with the control issues is effectively through the shareholding, particularly if we're just using an off-the-shelf or standard company. So again, we'll go back to that little example of Mary and Jim, I think I was referring to. So if Jim wanted to be a controller, so to speak, Mary and Jim would be both directors of that company and we would expect then that they're likely to be both members or perhaps Jim is the sole member and he just wants Mary, as is permissible under the superannuation rules, to be a co-director with him in the event of some disability or death of him. So because Jim wants to be in control, what we could do is issue 1,200 shares to Jim in this particular example and 120 shares to Mary. You see, now he's in a very strong position. He could, if he needed to, for whatever reasons might personally apply, remove Mary as a director using his superior shareholding. They might note those numbers there. I said 1,200 for Jim and 120 for Mary. It's just a factor that I like. I like to use numbers that have that factor to it because, you see, for future succession planning, those numbers are divisible by 1, 2, 3, 4... 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, and 12. So if there was an interest in maybe they've got three children between them and they want to pass those shares equally between those children or perhaps they've got two children and two of those children each have three children, um, there may be reasons as to why, from a pure succession perspective, it's appropriate to pass the shareholding on to others. And when you're setting up the company in that first occasion, you can set it up with one share or you can set up set the company up with 1,200. It actually costs the same, but you end up with a great deal of possible flexibility should it be needed in the future. So control is probably the major factor that people will consider once we've decided to have a company in place. The primary way of achieving control is through having superior number of shares. By having the superior number of shares, then it's got the ability for that person, Jim in my example, should it be necessary to do so, exercise those superior shareholder rights, remove Mary, and perhaps subject to the terms of the trust deed, remove Mary as a member as well. possible to have a director who is not a member? Section 17A, if you've got a sole member super fund, you can have two people as trustees or one person as a director or two people as a director. That's the only occasion. Okay. So if you have three members slash directors, then you can't have a director who's not a member. Correct. And then also coming to this other example you used with Mary and Jim, if yeah. both of them are individual trustees, yeah. if then Jim dies, yes. Mary needs to bring in a second person who then becomes that's, an uh, individual a, trustee but minimum, who's not a member. Uh, that's correct. And then you've got to change every single asset. So what I say is just put a company in place. Yes. Because if Jim dies, Mary's there. 
and she doesn't want to have to try to change every single asset at a time when she's suffering some degree of grief. And then the shareholdings really only matter when you have a director who's not a member. Because if all directors are also members, then the shareholdings don't really matter because you can never get rid of somebody. No, you as can, because a- it might still matter. So using Jim and Mary as the example, yes. I've got Jim with 1,200 shares, Mary with 120, and all's going well. Jim dies, Mary's got her shares, and she's the sole director continuing, and that's all good. Mary dies, Jim's got his shares, he's the sole director, and it just continues. Mary and Jim have an argument and want to get divorced. What Jim wants to do is to sack Mary and get her out of the super fund. But he can't because Mary is a member. And so what by he, definition, she needs to be a director. But what he might do is contemporaneous. So what he would do is on the Monday morning, remove her as a director, Monday afternoon, transfer her benefit out to another super fund. Whether or not that's exactly legal, whether or not it's permitted, will be a factor of the super fund trustee. But that's how he gets rid of her. It's also a factor of whether the assets are there and so forth, but that's what he might do. Because if you've got two directors that are controlling the super fund and if he says it's night, she'll always say it's day, and if she says it's night, he'll always say it's day, you've got a problem. You can't make any investments. You can't get returns done. And so what sometimes I've helped people do is you sack them, get rid of them and get them out. But in most trustees, do you see all members slash directors hold the same number of shares? Or is it quite common? That's right. So I'm saying that where control is an important factor, then you may want to have different number of shares. You're right. The majority don't think about future control and they don't have different shares. And for the majority also, life goes on as normal and they have nice relationships and They all retire into the sunshine. It's only when the problems arise that it's nice and or good that you've got that little bit of extra power. When Jim and Mary are still getting along, yeah. it would be difficult to explain to Mary why she only gets 120 <clears throat> shares and why Jim is getting 1,200 shares. It may be difficult. It might not be difficult. I don't know. That's mm. the factor that the person... Yes, but you're right. If Mary is switched on then it may mean that Jim really has to do some fancy talking. And so you can get into a storm and since most directors hold equal shares and since most SMSFs are mum and dads, where you basically have 50-50, mm-hmm. those SMSFs can easily run into a stalemate where correct. nobody has control and That's correct. they don't talk to each other and they can't make any decisions. The moment you have three directors slash trustees slash members, yeah. Two can gang team up. up. Yeah, yeah, correct. Two can gang up against the third. That, that's correct, yeah. So just to reflect on that, one of the reasons as to why you would consider having different number of shares or possibly different classes of shares is just a matter of control. It is just nothing more and nothing less than one person being able to have superior control over the other. Take what is, I'd have to admit, the most common scenario, again, let's talk about Mary and Jim, whereby Mary and Jim are the co-directors of that special purpose company trustee of their self-managed super fund, of which they are the only members. Now, if they also happen to have exactly the same number of shares and Unfortunately for them, there's a 
quite a significant breakdown of their relationship, well, the problem then becomes that Superfund may end up being in a major stalemate position. And a stalemate Superfund can mean financial returns aren't prepared, investments aren't disposed of and sold, maybe at critical market times and the such. Let's face it, if control is an issue, well, that's something that should be considered. And it's a matter of us professionals for raising that for the benefit of the client. Now, I talk about control from the corporate trustee level. That control is via the constitution of the company. Control might also be found under the terms of the superannuation fund trust deed. So don't assume that the mere issue of a majority or special class of shares will achieve that degree of control that people want. Oh, and um, just by the way, perhaps I, I should talk about Mary and Jim and just maybe Mary and Jim are all good. There is no issue. Having different classes of shares or the ability to issue more shares can be effective also from a succession perspective. The suggestion there is that Mary and Jim may have the 120 and then 1,200 or perhaps they'll each have 120 shares. But then we may issue shares also to their children. Again, we won't issue enough shares so that the children can outvote their parents, but we may issue them with enough shares that if there is a sudden calamity and both parents, Mary and Jim, in our example, unfortunately in a horrendous accident and die, well, because the children have shares, they can then immediately act, appoint themselves as directors and do what may be urgently needed to do with a particular superannuation fund. So it's not just about having majority shares so that one can be the controller over the other, but it could also be about having an array of shares issued for general succession purposes. It's just so new to me that I'm flabbergasted. So Mary and Jim could give shares to the SMSF corporate trustee, to their children, correct. even when the children are not members of the SMSF. That's correct, yeah. So the key to understanding this is to remember that what the superannuation law, the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act, in that section 17A, requires is that the corporate trustee has directors that are also the members. And, well, we've got to make sure that the members are the directors, but there's nothing there that talks about shareholding. So you're allowed to have any number of shares held by any number of people of any number of class, whatever is needed or appropriate to achieve the objective of passing control or exerting that special degree of control. But it's not just the constitution, do remember that. So having those superior number of shares or those different classes of shares to whomsoever, Mary, Jim, perhaps also the children, you've also got to look at it in the context of the superannuation fund trust deed because it's not uncommon nowadays for superannuation fund trust deeds to clearly express how the powers of decision-making is to be undertaken by the trustees even where the trustee is a company and how decisions at that level may be made as it relates to the superannuation fund. Now, because the trustee company is acting as trustee of this superannuation fund, what you'll find is that 
the terms of the trust deed will likely dominate how decisions are made. To give you an example, we may have Mary with her 120 shares and Jim with his 1,200 shares, but it's very possible, it's actually quite common, that the superannuation fund trust deed will say that all decisions of the trustee, whether the individuals or directors of a company, are made according to their account balance. So that if Mary's account balance is $1 million and Jim's account balance is, say, $500,000, then despite Mary having the smaller number of shares, you can see that, and she being one of two directors, you can see that according to a super fund with rules of that nature, the result or the requirement is that Mary's vote is actually more binding or or overpowers that of Jim's because in that example she'll have, in effect, if you will, 1,000 votes whilst he will only have 500. So don't forget, do look at the Superfund trust deed itself for decision-making because it's not just in the corporate trustee. So if in doubt, the deed overrides the constitution or the deed overrides any disproportionate holding of shares. Yeah, exactly who has what power and when is just going to be a factor of the relevant constituent documents. Commonly, the trust deed will take precedence, but to the extent that the trust deed doesn't apply in a particular circumstance, for example, who will be the directors of that company, then it's the company's constitution and the number of shares on issue that will then be relevant. So really you've got to be alive to all constitutional documents, that is the SMSF, trust deed, as well as the constitution for the company itself. Could I just come back to the company constitution? Mm. Yeah. Do you find that most SMSF corporate trustees have a constitution or do you see quite a few just having replaceable rules? I, I find most of them have a constitution. I see. Yeah. But most of them just have a standard off-the-shelf constitution yes. that is just normal company. Yeah. Yeah, and it's normal company. It just will have a clause in there that says that if it's a special company, these rules apply. But it's always if, then these rules apply. How are these constitutions different to the replaceable rules? How much is it an issue if a corporate trustee only has replaceable rules? It's not that much of an issue. And really, it's just a factor of the designer. You'll have, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, I don't know how many people who run businesses of supplying companies. And they will have their own style. So some will have a style that's dominantly replaceable rule approach. Others will have a style where they like to express everything in their constitution. It's really a factor of style. So it's not a big issue if a company just goes by the replaceable rules? No, it's not a big issue. It's just what it is. In one sense, one might consider it a little easier because as replaceable rules may automatically change by change of corporations law, then their corporation is updated. But the downside is if you want to know what to do, you need to read both the constitution document and the corporation's law. So you're reading two sets of papers so as to know what the company directors or shareholders need to do in a given situation. Whereas those who package it all in the one document, you just read the one document being the constitution. But if you go by the replaceable rules, then there is no constitution. No, there is. The constitution is merely made up of the replaceable rules. I see. And the replaceable rules sit in the company in the Corporations Corporations Act. Act. That's right. So you'll have a constitution and it will say 
that the primary rules that apply will be the replaceable rules. Um, I've never seen a company where they've only relied on the replaceable rules. But at a minimum, the corporation's constitution will declare, for example, who the initial shareholders are and what the name of the company is mm. at a minimum. And then it may adopt replaceable rules thereafter. Yes. But I've actually never seen one where it's only adopted the replaceable rules and nothing else. So I expect that there would be some of the others. If you go through a provider, then the constitution always comes with it. Yeah. But if you register a company directly through the Australian Business Register, yeah. then there is nothing. You just get an ACN, you get an ABN, you get a tax file number. If you apply, you get an OSCE. But there is no... There is no constitution. Okay, well then, is I, that, a, I, is that I, a problem or a replaceable rules? No, it, rules it won't. Just... It won't be a problem. It'll be the replaceable rules that will apply. I've actually not gone through the process of creating a company like that, so that's hmm. beyond my understanding. Now that we've dealt with so to speak, whether we're going to have a company or a person as trustee of the self-managed super fund, and I always recommend company, and we've gone through the process of working out whether we'll have a clearly and specifically defined constitution or replaceable rules, and we've decided who the directors are going to be. Of course, they're going to be the members, and we've also dealt with who might be the holder of shares. We then come to address, well, what happens if one of those directors dies, just literally, what happens? What's the position? Well, I have to say, I don't know. Now, of course I do, or at least I can work it out, but at first instance I've got to say I don't know because I actually need to sit down and work it out. And what does that mean? Well, you need to grab the trust deed for that self-managed super fund, identify the constitution of that company, be it replaceable rules or a clearly defined and written constitution, understand who the relevant shareholders are and what number of shares they may have and what class, if any, of rights that they have. And then you then address what happens when one of the directors of the SMSF corporate trustee dies. It's not automatic. Don't think it is. It's not automatic that the legal personal representative of that director steps into their shoes. In fact, that's unless it's specifically stated somewhere that that's exactly what happens. And for that to be specifically stated, it would really need to be in the Constitution. And most of them, to my knowledge, or experience rather, don't say that. Then the position of the legal personal representative and them becoming a director automatically is most, most unlikely. So we then have time running and we, we may have a position where, using my Jim and Mary example, Jim has died and Well, Mary's already there, so maybe nothing is needed, but maybe Jim's family, because, hey, Jim and Mary may not be partners for life. They they may be business partners. So Jim's family is now concerned as to who's got control of the super fund. Well, in the example we're now um, being provided with, Mary, that is because she's the sole continuing director. Well, Mary is the second wife. Yep. It could be that Mary is the second wife and... Uh, and Jim and, has children from the first marriage. And it's Jim's first marriage children that are expressing that concern. And there are Supreme Court cases on exactly that scenario where what was in challenge was who were lawfully 
the directors who were lawfully able to assert director control of the company. So it's not automatic. It turns entirely on the trust deed. And one of the things I absolutely emphasise is that if there is any scintilla of a potential risk of challenge or claim, put some effort into understanding what are the rules when one corporate director of the SMSF trustee dies and do those rules match? And if there is to be a strategy employed, employ that strategy, have those steps in place, know who can step in. Remembering that, again, you need to review both the trust deed for the self-managed superannuation fund for what it says, as well as the constitution, knowing who owns what number of shares and are there any classes or rights that are attaching to those. In the absence of doing that, it can be really quite significant in terms of cost, time. When I say time, I mean time of nothing occurring because there's just no person with ability to do something all occurring at a time of great uncertainty and, for some, grief. Now, you might then ask, well, what's the interplay between the Constitution and the trust deed? Which one dominates? Well, I have to say, I don't know again. And it really does turn on the precise and specific facts. Commonly, neither document will combine, or sorry, neither document will govern completely a situation Both documents together often will. Sometimes they will cover the situation, but then there's conflict between them, and that's really quite diabolical. Where these sort of death issues do arise, this is where someone may be encouraged to have in place a binding death benefit nomination form. So why would someone adopt a binding death benefit nomination? Well, specifically to address a perceived fear or risk of there being a dispute into the future. Personally, um, I can actually let you know that I don't have a binding death benefit nomination for my own self-managed superannuation fund. Why? Well, in my case, I and my wife, we're quite happily married, we're quite happily confident about our children, we're quite happily about knowing that there's no BDBN in place. The benefit that we have is flexibility, We don't have a fear of a claim, either of us or the children, on our respective superannuation. So for us, what's most important is flexibility. Should something happen to me, my wife's in a position to gain professional, competent advice at that time and then to make a flexible decision. Having a binding debt benefit nomination just may remove that flexibility. Now, of course, removing that flexibility is good, in which case you would have a binding debt benefit nomination where the purpose of having it is because of this perceived or potential actual risk of a challenge or a claim. So perhaps on the after the first of my wife and I passing away, then the survivor of us may, because of the possibility of blow-ins, so to speak, the survivors may then want to have a binding death benefit nomination because we want super to go to particular uh, our children or perhaps to the estate. So where there is a binding death benefit nomination in place, again, whether it's operative, whether it's effective, will be a factor of the trust deed to the superannuation fund. There are quite a many Supreme Court cases now where binding death benefit nominations are the subject of challenge. And the very first thing a court will look to 
is the terms of the trust deed to see whether the particular document, that binding death benefit nomination form, is consistent with what the trust deed prescribes as the manner in which it should be drawn up. The court will also look to see whether there's any failure irregularities because if there is a failure irregularity in connection with a particular form, the next question is whether that failure is fatal and the nomination is therefore completely ineffective or whether it's still binding nevertheless. So once we get past that review and we find that there is a binding death benefit nomination, then upon whom is it binding? Well, actually, it's binding on the trustee. So in the Jim and Mary scenario that we're referring to, remembering on this occasion that Mary is the second wife of Jim, in my little example here, he Jim may have a binding death benefit nomination saying half to Mary and half to his children of the first marriage. Well, that binding death benefit nomination, if it's otherwise completely consistent with the terms of the trust deed and has been correctly created, it will be binding. And Mary will then be obliged to pay half to Jim's children of the first marriage and take the benefit of the other half to herself. In theory, Mary is under a binding obligation to pay out half of the super to her children. But if she doesn't, then, of course, the children have to go through the court. That's correct. The money might be gone by the time they get to her. So possession is really nine-tenths of the law in this case. So it very much comes back to what happens to the director position. Yes, who's got control. Being very practical, I do have to admit that that old adage of possession is nine-tenths of the law certainly applies in, in the area of superannuation. Having binding death benefit nominations in place or, or rules as to continuing conduct Well, you just got to acknowledge that whoever has their foot stamped very squarely on the ability to control and deal with the financial assets of the self-managed superannuation fund, well, they've got first sway. They've got that first ability of control. They may be in breach or they may ultimately be in breach if they don't follow a particular binding death benefit nomination format. But because they're registered as such, because they're got their name on the share certificate or rather they're the sole continuing director of the company that has its name on the share certificates or the bank account, they've got factual possession. So this is why I advocate going back to when we're looking to be setting up the company as trustee, we really need to just almost, if you will, scenario play out what future possibilities will occur. Should there be a binding death benefit nomination, a degree of comfort can be drawn from that. But get practical as well. Make sure that the binding death benefit nomination model or process is backed up by the individuals being the directors at the material time or being the sole director. And that the same individual that is expected will comply with the binding death benefit nomination has control of the shareholding as well. It really is just a matter of crossing those T's and dotting those I's and and making sure not merely that the legal enforceable obligation is in place for where it's very important, i.e. binding death benefit nomination or maybe it's even hardwired into the trust deed, but then look to the practical components as well. 
Will the person that will carry out those rules be the sole or continuing director of the corporate trustee? Will they have sufficient voting power to be able to exercise those rights in terms of control of that corporate trustee so as to then take control of the superannuation fund assets, remembering again possessions nine-tenths of the law, and with the control of those superannuation assets put in place, whatever that objective originally planned for may have been. So don't go into an SMSF with somebody who you don't want your super to go to. If you want your super so, so to go it, to person A, don't set up an SMSF with person B. So what are some of the practical circumstances I'm talking about? Well, if we've got a couple that are in a second marriage situation that have perhaps been through that first horrendous divorce, don't combine your super funds into one. Keep those super funds separate and independent. If they've already been through a family law separation and the traumas that come with going through the lawyers and dividing up the marriage pot, then on a second marriage situation... Don't combine those two individuals into the same superannuation fund. Allow them to keep their finances separate. What I'm saying is just think through and activate and make sure that there is a plan of action or steps in place as to who will then take control should one or the other of them die quite unexpectedly. So there certainly can be circumstances where some people, despite the best of advice of always keeping your finances separate, where they might come together. And commercially, I can even see in the example of holding business or property jointly as to why you would bring two people together, but just build in those separation rules as well, build in those breakaway rules. It's when there's no breakaway rules in the future that it becomes highly problematic. Just think about not merely putting it together and the advantages, but also tearing it asunder and putting in place whatever advantageous rules are required so as to minimise time, cost, strength and angst. Welcome back. After our talk, Peter clarified another important point. A corporate trustee can have a constitution or just go by the replaceable rules. Either way is fine. However... To qualify as a special purpose company and enjoy lower annual ASIC fees, the company must have a constitution that includes a clause that prohibits the company from distributing income or capital to its shareholders. Standard companies distribute profits to its shareholders, of course, that's what a company does. But to qualify for the lower ASIC fee, the special purpose company, aka the corporate trustee company, must state very clearly in its constitution that there won't be any distributions to shareholders. Because, of course, the SMSF is there to distribute benefits to its members. In the next episode, episode 182, Peter Bobbin will talk about SMSF jointly buying property with a member or another SMSF or third party. So SMSF joint property acquisitions. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.